You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is Dr. Eileen Wong, who writes as I.W. Gregorio. I've invited her onto the podcast to talk about her latest novel, This Is My Brain in Love. It's a YA novel that touches on mental health issues. In fact, she's described the novel as a happy book about mental illness across cultures. Since July is Black, Indigenous, People of Color Mental Health Awareness Month, I thought this would be a good time to have her on Talking Taiwan. Welcome to the podcast, Eileen. Thank you so much for having me, Felicia. So first things first, I see that you write under a pen name, I.W. Gregorio. Could you tell me why you've chosen to do that and how you came up with that pen name? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, when I first started writing, um, I very early on decided I wanted to do a pen name because um, at that point I was a resident and going to be starting my own private practice in medicine. And I wanted to keep sort of my author life a little bit separate from my um, my writing, my, my medical career, um, because at that point, um, I just wasn't sure, you know, what my books were going to be like, and, you know, whether um, I, I wanted to make sure that when my patients Googled me, they didn't find a, a YA author, I mm -hmm. wanted to sort of keep my professional, um, my medical professional life and my writing life separate. Um, I also um, really, since I, when I, when I, um, married I didn't change my name mm -hmm. um, but um, as a result you know there have always been times when I've been called oh Mrs. you know Gregorio because that's my husband's last name oh. and, um, and one thing I did want to do with my name was to have my, so that my kids could you know say this is my mother you know and um, for it to be recognizable to them um, and and I but I also wanted to keep a little bit of myself the IW I guess so yeah. that's how I ended up doing it. Oh. Um, it's funny how in the in you know re more recently as you know the books have gotten more press I have kind of doxed myself a little bit and that recently <laughs> there were at least two profiles in you know the Philadelphia area that like distinctly said you know Eileen Wong writing as IW Gregorio so I think in the end it was all moot but um, I do I did initially want to separate those two careers a little bit um, especially because there were some edgier components to my first um, novel um, none of the above um, and um, I just I, I wanted to keep those two person personas distinct as it were right oh interesting so did the um, interest in writing come later because you are a, you're a surgeon right yeah, um, it's always it's funny because I think that a lot of times people, do, one of the first people things people ask me is how did a urologist become a writer, but I think the better thing to ask is actually probably how our writer became a urologist because long before I even was aware um, of medicine as a career, aside from you know the fact that my a lot of my family members growing up were doctors, I I always felt like deep down in my heart that I wanted to be a writer and larger that large reason for that is that I um, really grew up in a very rural semi-rural rural slash suburban area in upstate New York that was mm -hmm. very conservative and where I didn't always feel like I fit in as an Asian American and so books were really my friends um, I was such a bookworm growing up and um, you know when especially when you live in, a, in an area where 
it can seem like seem very closed in, you know, very conservative. Um, there weren't a lot of people who there are a lot a lot of people in our town sort of stayed there, mm-hmm. um, and um, books allowed me to just explore so many other experiences. Um, like I, I always like to joke about things like you know the first gay person I met was in a book, you know the first. <laughs> black person or Latino person I met were in a book and, and the perspective that those books gave me, um, I think shaped a lot of who I am as a person. And I've always wanted to like create that sense of connection for other people. Um, I wanted to make other people laugh and cry the way I always laughed and cried and, and really lived and devoured these books such the point where so many of the characters were so much more real. Um, um, than the people I knew. So um, that's one of the reasons why I always wanted to be a writer. Like I always knew that I, you know, loved stories and was passionate about it. And those were the things that, that set me in fire and that I felt really excited about um, and loved talking about. And um, at some point, though, um, you know, during high school, I um, you know, I did grow up in a fairly traditional um, Asian American family. I actually grew up with my grandparents, um, uh-huh. who were first generation immigrants, and um, they always, you know, were very pragmatic um, about, you know, what was needed to survive. You know, having, you know, lived through and like two different migrations. My grandfather was actually born in South Africa. He grew up in poverty, and uh, but he went to medical school and then moved to Malaysia and then the U.S. Like always, sort of like searching for the best life for their family. Right. And I think that they instilled upon me early on that the need to be able to provide and to you know avoid struggle um, and to to be ambitious in a way that. Um, either gave you prestige or gave you know honor to the family. So I think that um, it w- it sort of fell upon me as you know the first one in my generation. You know someone who was fairly good at math and science. You know medicine was sort of the default um, profession, especially because my grandfather was a doctor. And um, there are a lot of reasons to choose medicine. Um, that I think I did realize really early on that. I'm the type of person who's definitely more on the extrovert side who likes interacting with people who um, I don't think I could ever be a lab scientist. I don't think I could ever, you know, be an accountant or, or I feel like so much of what I uh, so much of the energy that I get in life is from other people um, that in many respects, medicine actually did turn out to be one of the best professions for me. Um and um, certainly it's a respected one and it gives you financial security and in many ways it enabled my writing career um, because writing is really hard. Um, I mean, there are many times where I'm grateful for <laughs> that that medical background as a fallback to allow me to write the stories that I, that I want to write rather than the stories that the market necessarily thinks are more profitable. And so... I think that, you know, Virginia Woolf often talks about how um, authors, specifically women's authors, need um, rooms of their own that they've created that give them the space and the financial security um, to be able to write, write, a, 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 write, a, write their, their art. And in many respects, medicine helped me create that room for myself. Um, and um, it also is something that I wanted to get into because I've 
felt very strongly that medicine um, is really as much of an art as a science and there's so much story involved in it. There's so much connection. Um, and there are so many ways in which my medical career has informed my writing. I mean, and there's a long tradition of doctor writers. I mean, Chekhov was a doctor. Mm. So was William Car- Carlos Williams. I went to Yale Medical School specifically because two really prominent physician writers, Sherwin Newland, who wrote How We Die, and Richard Seltzer, mm. who wrote Confessions of a Life. They were both uh-huh. um, surgeons who practiced at Yale. Um, and I actually got to, you know, do workshops with them. And um, and it all sort of fit together. You know, we talk a lot about intersections and how um, I think for, for me, the way that I think about the world is I don't like to be, I, I kind of think of it that, you know, I don't, I'm not the type steak and potatoes type of person. I'm a buffet type of person. I like to have a variety. I think that either it's, whether it's ADD <laughs> or whether it's um, just that I don't like to be pigeonholed. I think that um, as much as I sometimes think, oh, I'd be so much better doctor if I weren't a writer or I would be so much better writer if I weren't a doctor, I think that for me, the two complement each other and like being that bridge is something that's my unique strength. Right. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. That's really interesting how um, you've made that work for you. Um, I was really intrigued by your description of your novel as a happy book about mental illness across cultures. So just to set things up a little bit for my listeners, uh, there is a romance and one of the characters, Jocelyn, is uh, Taiwanese, Taiwanese American, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you also being um, Taiwanese American, I have to ask, like, how much of the book is biographical or based on your personal experience I would say that, like, the nuts and bolts of it are not autobiographical. Um, so your, but, your but family didn't like have the, a I, restaurant. My family, did not, own, my family <laughs> did not own a restaurant, but I love food. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, and, you know, it, but at the same time, the characters, um, the parents, um, the grandparents, um, the brother, they a lot of them definitely um, – you can hear, you can see echoes of my life. Um, you know, like I, um, not as a spoiler. So one of the things I wanted to do when I was writing this book was to invert the model minority myth, uh-huh. um, which I think is something that has plagued many <laughs> Asian Americans and Taiwanese Americans specifically. Um, because, um, like I, I remember so many times when people just looked at me and they thought that they knew who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's frustrating because in many respects, I, I did fit pretty neatly into that model minority. <laughs> you know, I played the violin, you know, I, I went to medical school. Um, I was pretty straight edge, but at the same time, um, I wanted to be a writer, you know, I, um, in many ways, I think rebelled against certain like aspects of, my um my parents priorities and more uh-huh. and you know values uh-huh. um and at the same time i i feel like being being part of that model minority is is so hurtful to um other people in other communities mm-hmm. um especially the black community and that's why i made it really it was really important for me in this um, novel to have the Asian American character be the one who is interested in, you know, in an art who is more, much less economically privileged, um, and who isn't the person. It's it's actually the 
the black character um, who is the kid who gets great A's and who um, is extremely nerdy to the point of um, being a you know computer nerd, et cetera, and hanging out with the other computers. So, um, but at the same time, um, I also really the other thing that I really wanted to do in this book was to show that crazy is the new normal um, because I do feel like there's still despite I think it was Tipper Gore in the 80s who created that the National Task Force for Mental Health and that was decades ago yeah. and there's still so much stigma surrounding mental illness um, mm-hmm. there's so much resistance to to seeking help to admitting that there's something going on and mm-hmm. um, you know these kids these days there they have you know, a 30 or 40% chance of having some sort of mental illness, whether mm. it be anxiety or depression or ADD in their life. Um, neuroatypia is actually getting to be more typical than not. I um, mean, especially now during a pandemic, yeah. you know, everyone is in, is grappling with the fact that anxiety and depression are very much of a spectrum. And the tools that give people, you know, that make people strong mentally or resilient mentally are th- tools that everyone needs to know um, and, and everyone can partake of. So the term they use, neuroatypia, that's a medical term for men- mental health or mental illness? Or? Uh, it, it, so it can be, um, it, uh, it, I think it's most commonly used for people who ha- are on the autism spectrum. Mm. Um, but neuroatypia is also an umbrella term that can definitely involve people who are bi- you know, who have mental illness or who are bipolar. So mm-hmm. anytime you know you're given a label um, that has to do with how your brain works, mm-hmm. I think that that, mm-hmm. that, that um, label works. And I think that it's especially important for anxiety and depression because to 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 have really robust and complex narratives because so much of the media narrative surrounding depression is really focused on death by suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes sense. It's obviously it's a newsworthy event when Robin Williams, you know, dies by suicide or when, you know, um, any of the other various yeah, Anthony Bourdain's Kate Spade, yeah, Bourdain, yeah. Kate Spade the, the K-pop mm-hmm. artists. Mm-hmm. It's of course it's newsworthy, but at the same time that focus on the endpoint misses so often everything that right. all the different points of intervention beforehand and especially because there were cert- at, at some point a few years ago there were quite a few YA books and there are still many movies that in some respects not exactly glorify but they um, they they romanticize death by suicide to a point where I think that it's it's a little unhealthy because it's it's so focused on that act and not on you know yeah. how to how to recognize things before it because it's such a spectrum and if we give kids the tools to be able to at least identify their emotions and also to to not be afraid when to to seek help to have therapy not be something that you speak about in whispered tones you know to not have medication be something that you're afraid that your, your parents or your partner or your colleagues find out i think it's really important yeah yeah, I mean, it's just so surprising with all these high-profile um, suicides. Like, you know, why isn't that we haven't, it hasn't led us to a deeper discussion to delve into the reasons or the risk factors or the things that lead up to that. We just hear about it, then people are all shocked, but then there's no, like, deeper conversation about that. I mean, 
Why do you think that is, and what do you think that can be done to educate and create more awareness? I mean, I think that the... It's still a taboo subject, I suppose. I think the fact that it's so often connected mm -hmm. to this this horrible event is one of the reasons there's so much stigma about it because people are afraid to come out because they're afraid that people will overreact. Mm-hmm. But it's the people who 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 are brave enough to come about it when things seem normal that I, I have the most for respect for these mm-hmm. days. I mean, remember uh, reading an article on Michael, Michael Phelps talking about his depression. Mm-hmm. I mean, here is literally the most decorated Olympic athlete in the mm-hmm. world who is incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful. The fact that he can experience the same sort of you know feelings that you know so many millions of people have um is really validating i think for people to realize that it's not a quote character flaw that you know you can depression is not something that's limited to people who are unsuccessful or you know it's not and and i think that that tie between depression and lack of success i think is a thing that is part of the stigma Mm -hmm. You know, um, I felt for so for so many years, I felt like I had to hide the fact that I was on antidepressants because it would make it seem like I was weak or I wasn't good enough. Um, and at the same time, you could argue that the the glorific the the emphasis on suicide sometimes made me think, oh, I must not de- be depressed enough. You know, because, because, yeah. because and, I, and I know plenty of people who are like, oh, you know, yeah, I'm down, but it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And I'm like, the fact that you're not suicidal does not mean that you're not depressed. Yeah. And um, so I, I think that that, that is, that's all, it's all part of the complicated narrative. Yeah, and that's very complicated. People hearing this may think, okay, so you're depressed, but you're not depressed to the point of suicidal. So then mm-hmm. how do you identify if you're clinically depressed or you're just in the dumps? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I for from the doctor's perspective, there are definitely you know, clinical markers like mm-hmm. loss of appetite, you know, loss mm-hmm. of either decreased or increased appetite, um, loss of interest in things that you're in, that you, that you want to do, um, and, and physical fatigue. But mm-hmm. it's funny when, um, when we're in medical school, the, the, the biggest, um, diagnostic thing that we actually learn is that, you know, someone's depressed when you feel depressed when you're in the same room as they are. <laughs> Interesting. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in the author's note of the, your book, you wrote openly about your personal struggles with mental health, and I really commend you for doing that. How difficult was it to write this book and to quote-unquote come out about your depression and mental health issues, or maybe it wasn't because you came out about this before? I'm just curious. It was hard. I mean, it's still never really something mm-hmm. that I've really talked to with mm-hmm. um with all of my family, some mm-hmm, of them, mm-hmm. but not all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I, at the same time, I definitely felt more of a need, more of a, like a screw it all. I'm going to write about this because I have children now, you know, mm-hmm. because um, I want my kids to be able to, to see all of me mm-hmm. and to, you know, it can be hard because I do think that it can seem intimidating when you're a kid and your parents seem, you know, either financially successful or, you know, academically successful, you know, to think, oh, you know, I have to be perfect because I have to, in order to live up to to that standard, 
Mm-hmm. And it was really important for me as a mother to just um, put it out there um, mm-hmm. and have them know that if they have these feelings, they are not alone and that they can come to me. Mm. You know, one of the things that I could never, ever live with is not my kids didn't feel like they could they could talk to me about mm-hmm. these things. Are your kids old enough to read your novels? Yeah, my daughter um, is my daughter's going on 11 and so I think that she's you know I'm I'm sort of waiting for the time for her to read it but it's out there you know I told mm-hmm. her you can read it if you want <laughs> and she hasn't like d- 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 dived in yet uh-huh. but you know uh-huh. I think she's definitely right at the point where could you speak a little soon. bit more about your depression and your journey how you discovered it and how did your family deal with it or react to it mm-hmm it's funny. The, the easiest question to ask is how my family deal with it. And like, honestly, they haven't had to de- deal with it. It's it's something that came up when I was in college and oh. that I've never really, they've never really seen firsthand mm-hmm. because I haven't lived with them since. Mm-hmm. And that is, again, it's part of why I wanted to write this book because um, I don't know why. Oh, I do know why I felt like I could never discuss it with them um just because i know that in the past they've always been very um anti um medication Mm -hmm. um because they've always sort of been of the impression well you know just buck up you know just just you know get over it um and i know that there are times when i for instance when i thought one of my um family members may have a add and they it was written off you know, and it was it was actually a source of anger for me to suggest that to suggest that there might be a clinical diagnosis. Um, part of it has to do with it's paradoxically suspicion of medical profession <laughs> and the mm. people who are not mm. doctors just as um, they probably know a little bit too much <laughs> about uh-huh. how the sausage is made. Uh, um, right, because you come from a family of other medical professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But that's something that doctors themselves I think because of the culture of medicine despite the fact that they know that these medications work a lot of doctors do find it a point of pride when to get them one of my friends who from medical school who is actually a psychiatrist I remember her being on antidepressants and very intentionally wanting to get off of them like intentionally being like feeling giving the impression that it was a sign of strength that she was able to get off of it, to beat Mm. it, to like, and, um, she was also a person of color and, Mm -hmm. and I respect that because I can respect, you know, there are needs for, you know, there are side effects, you know, there's cost involved, there's, and there's, there, it it is sort of a a mental block to feel like you need to rely on something as a crutch, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, one of the things I realized um, was that, you know, as a doctor, I would never deny a diabetic person insulin. I would mm-hmm. never say, oh, well, um, just, you know, keep on, you know, just keep on working on the diet. You know, if they need it, if they, their sugars are still high, then they need insulin or they need a medication, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it's just interesting that mental health is something that's, because it's so difficult to capture like there's not like one marker there's not like one lab test Mm -hmm. i can say oh you're depressed Mm -hmm. i think because of that it's easier to 
to convince yourself that you're not on that spectrum where you need something. Right. I mean, it's so individual. Um, but this brings me to another question. It seems like, you know, this, uh, with respect to the Asian American community in particular, a lot of the problem is how Asian Americans or their families react to mental health issues. A lot of the reactions, are, I don't want to generalize, but there's like denial, embarrassment, and as you mentioned, like seeing it as a weakness. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, how can question, maybe the solution or the question is, how can we destigmatize these things? Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the ways to do it is, um, you know, it's funny, I I hate to medicalize things, but in, for so many people, um, when you medicalize something, it takes the value judgment away. When you mm -hmm. think about it in terms of of chemistry, mm -hmm. it makes so much more sense. Mm -hmm. um, I almost feel like in some ways the term mental illness is a misnomer because when you say something's mental, that implies that it's all in their head, mm -hmm. that it's imaginary. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's actually a very physical thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the heart palpitations you get when you're anxious, you know, you know, the fact that thyroid conditions can contribute to depression. There's so many things about, you know, quote, mental illness that are truly physical. Mm -hmm. So it's like, an, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a misnomer, but I think that um, emphasizing the science behind it um, and emphasizing the fact that um, even though there are no no easy answers, I mean, I think that um, one of the main things that we can really do is to start realizing that mental illness isn't just mental, that it is a, as much of a physical illness, a much of a clinical diagnosis based on chemistry and biology as any other sickness. Um, because, and that's hard, a hard thing with a hard thing for even me as a doctor to, um, to go through. Um, I mean, I remember when, I mean, this, it, I remember very clearly during the episode in, in residency when I was speaking with a therapist. And at that point, I had been off of meds. I remember specifically being, oh, I was, I feel okay. I'm going to stop the medications. And, and because I was worried about seeing, seeming weak, I felt like if I was off it, somehow I was a better person. Um, and I remember this therapist specifically just saying to me, Eileen, maybe you're just someone who needs the serotonin. And it was such a huge breakthrough for me because it allowed me to realize, of course, I would never deny um, uh, insulin to a diabetic person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, why am I denying that to myself? You know, and, and I hate to, there are so many ways in which medicalizing certain things is bad, but I think this is one of the few ways in which the medicalization of a syndrome is actually good because it allows you to destigmatize it mm -hmm. and it allows you to separate it from all of the all of the very subjective um, shame um, that can be associated with with these shame and also just um, a sense of hopelessness mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. you know when you think of it as um, a disease then you can start targeting it and and trying to understand not necessarily the cure, but the treatments. 
I think that your book really helped normalize mental health in a way, and it re revealed that also it's something that's not to be taken lightly. What surprised me was that some of the thoughts that the character Jocelyn had were a form of passive ideation, like when she thought she, if she got hit by a car, that it might not have been such a bad thing. Um, could you explain a little bit more to my listeners what the term passive suicide ideation means? Yeah, um, so... As a, sometimes if you're, say, a doctor or a family medicine doctor and we're trying to screen someone for um, suicidal ideation, you often talk about um, active suicidal thoughts. And so um, having a plan, for instance, is sort of one of the classic, you know, super warning signs that, that um, uh, allow you to identify people who are at risk and who might even need hospitalization. Um, but much less talked about, I think, is the sort of what more literally more passive, not as active, but um, the, but also the more insidious thoughts of hopelessness, um, where not that you would would do anything um, intentional, but that you wouldn't mind if something happened that killed you. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that the issue with that is that often those are the types of thoughts that are easy for not only the patient but the provider or parent or teacher to sort of write off as you know either either being you know just being dramatic or something that you can get over as opposed to people who have act who are actively suicidal meaning like they have a plan they have for instance either a, like a, a gun or pills or you know things that they that they are intentionally going to do, um, which is the the typical like have very very high risk situation that clinicians and parents and teachers are so um, uh, at arms about. I think these more passive thoughts are easier for people to hide. Um, it's easy for people to write off as saying, "Oh, I wasn't serious," but um, there are actually studies showing that these passive um, thoughts are just as dangerous and often are associated with active thoughts and it's um it's it was it's something that is it's another instance where i you know i remember thinking oh I, i'm not depressed enough mm. <laughs> but you know it was really empowering for me to read about passive ideation um and how it's it's now a, a very it's it's an actual thing that people screen for now um because it has been so associated with with active suicide offense suicide attempts and again it's a spectrum and um you know legitimizing the points of the spectrum that are farther and farther down is in itself an act of prevention and mental health awareness can you talk a little bit about what it was that inspired you to write this particular story i know that you mentioned that you wanted your kids to have like you know more the bigger picture of who you are and you know like a lot of kids just see their parents as the success they are now, but they don't know the struggles that their parents have been through. And, and also, how long did it take you to write this book? Yeah. Um, so after I wrote my first book, um, I, it took me a lot longer uh, between books than, than most authors do, largely because I'm still working full time mm -hmm. um, and with kids. But also because it really made, I really had to think about the book that I wanted to write, the book that I was uniquely qualified to write, and because that is something that you know has been a very large discussion within the children's literature world, in particular, um, who you know who should write a story, 
um, and what is a story that I am uniquely um, positioned to write. And it take it just took a long time for that to percolate, um, largely because um, the book ended up in dual narrative, not only the perspective of the Taiwanese American girl, which obviously I mm-hmm. feel like I, I felt like I could write fairly legitimately and fairly clearly and, you know, organically. But um, all, the secondary character, which was a mixed race Nigerian um, in Italian, and that just took a lot longer to research and noodle around and figure it out. And um, but and so I, I, I spent many years just with ideas percolating and maybe not actively writing, um, mm-hmm. but um, largely because of the depression I fell in after the last election, for instance. Oh, I yeah. literally finished my, pr- my first draft proposal uh-huh. of it the day before election week. Oh. And then after that, everything, you know everything was really hard to focus on um and and it but it did really change um some of the things i wanted to write though you know Mm -hmm. i wanted to emphasize certain things over others um and because i was still working full time though i felt very strongly that i did not want to write this book i I couldn't write the whole thing that i needed to write an unproposal and i needed to you know work on Mm -hmm. it with an editor and um eventually i did get that through and when you write a proposal you write an outline and sort of a basic plot and the first 30 pages and that's what you sell and mm-hmm. then you have to write the whole thing and mm-hmm. once I wrote once I sold that um, I had six months to write it and so and that was much faster than I've ever written anything else in my life but in many respects um, for me particularly it was just really helpful because I do tend to procrastinate I'm a very deadline oriented person <laughs> so I tend to respond well to goals and to sure. pressure sure. Um, because then I don't have the excuse to listen to my internal editor who's, you know, anxious and worried and, you know, telling me, no, this isn't good enough, you know, right, right, typical right. things that, that many, many artists and, and writers go through. Yes. And what's your writing process like? Well, because, you know, it is something that I have to fit in. Um, I do do it late at night, you know, after my kids go to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I, I do. I have really grown to love writing um, by outline, mm-hmm. um, just because it just gives me that that vague roadmap, you know, um, just the, the the cities that I'm going to hit. Not necessarily what I'm going to do in every every single city, but it, it gives me a general sense of where it's going to go. And it's okay. I can take a detour here and there, but um, it, again, it breaks the bigger novel down into smaller workable plot workable points um and the biggest thing for me is to just try to do at least two pages every day and you know what they say is that if you write two pages every day by the end of a year you have a novel Mm -hmm. Um, it might not necessarily fit together i mean revision is the key um to most people's success Mm -hmm. um, in in writing um revision with especially with feedback from people who are who have distance from it mm-hmm. and um the biggest also the biggest part for me is having amazing critique partners um who i've met you know through different conferences through writers um chat groups and through other organizations um one of them you interviewed abby hingwen yes um, she's oldest critique partners who uh, authored love boat taipei mm-hmm. um, um stacy lee who wrote um outrun the moon and the downstairs girl mm-hmm. is another really valued critique partner mm-hmm. she read both of my novels mm-hmm. and wonderful and, and um and then there then there are 
you know, um, Kelly, uh, and there's an amazing author named Kelly Lloyd Gilbert, um, who wrote Pictures in the Light, which is an LA Time book um, award finalist. Um, Sonia Mukherjee is, is with Abby and mm-hmm. um, my oldest critique partner. Mm-hmm. She wrote um, Gemini. Uh-huh. Um, having that support group is it was for me key because writing is a really lonely profession. Right. And um, when you're an extrovert, um, mm-hmm. not having that connection and not having, um, it can make it hard, but having that external cheerleader, yeah, yeah. cheerleader slash mm-hmm. critique, you know, mm-hmm. critic, critic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind critic versus, um, and having, having the, the space to be with people who value what you're doing, um, is really, really important. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, great. I mean, I'm sure the feedback and then the camaraderie because you're all working on your own work as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you hope that your readers get out of reading your novel? I hope that they can read my novel and, and find compassion and self, self-compassion um, and, and empathy for, if not themselves, and for other people who are going through through anxiety and depression. Um, I hope that they come out of it a little bit more woke and a little bit less feeling like there's a stigma surrounding mm. uh, mental illness and that um, they have a better idea of what their different options are if they can, if they, if they, if they suffer from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also hope too that they, they laugh and, you know, <laughs> they, they, they cry a little bit and, you know, and that they, they, they see in these characters the same friends that I, you know, had when I was younger, that it, that it gives them comfort if they're lonely mm-hmm. um, and even if they're not. Right. What kind of feedback have you received so far, like from friends and family, your readers, reviewers, or if there's anybody that gave you a surprising response? I mean, especially since you touched on, uh, you know, you revealed your journey with mental illness in the author's note yeah it's it's been really wonderful um i mean there are obviously i think that obviously there are a lot of um asian americans who have who have specifically come to me and said you know thank you for writing this this is the first time i felt seen um that's amazing Mm -hmm. and and that's obviously super rewarding but the, the 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 craziest people are the people that i never thought would read it you know mm. the random person mm. or colleague who mm-hmm. read it and understood more about me and about themselves or the person the relative who actually was on antidepressants but had never told me or mm. never told and was isn't wasn't quote out about it mm. um but who now felt comfortable reaching out to me about that um and i <laughs> It was really funny. I did a telehealth um, visit with a patient recently who discovered it, and he was like, "Dr. Wong, I didn't realize you were one of us." <laughs> and and he was like, "And because you, you always seem so happy and upbeat." And I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> that's And again, it just shows what how much of a front people can put up, mm-hmm. and um, that's important too to realize. Yeah. Um, and for me to realize for myself that it's okay to show that I'm vulnerable. Yeah. It's um, that opening up that side of me can make other people um, either feel that I'm more accessible or um, be a relief to them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. 
So you've written two novels for YA audiences. Your first book was called None of the Above, and if anyone knows that book, you certainly don't seem to shy away from controversial topics. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what that book was about? Yeah, so um, that that book was pitched as Middlesex meets Mean Girls, mm -hmm. and um, it's based on a the st based on my experiences with a patient who found out when she was seventeen um, that she was born intersex, even though she identified as a girl, and you know, phenotypically looked like a girl from the outside. She actually was XY had internal testes and no no uterus mm. um so she had something called androgen insensitivity syndrome and um, oh, it's what funny is that? that so that's a biological condition where um your your body's the child's body cells a baby's cells are deaf to testosterone so even though it's xy the body doesn't develop in the quote typical mm -hmm. male pattern so externally like i said if you look at if you looked at this person completely naked, they would look like a woman. They would have, they so, have breasts. Yeah, so then my question is, um, if she didn't have a uterus, like, could she have intercourse or like an orgasm? Mm -hmm. So they typically have a short vagina, and so that can actually be dilated and made, um, and mm. made to, so that you can have intercourse without pain. Um, mm. And yes, you can definitely have orgasm um, because typically the genitalia outside looks like a clitoris mm. and, and functions like a mm. clitoris yeah but um, it's, it's it was a really important thing from I felt s so strongly that I need to write about that because um, I feel pretty passionately about the fact that mm -hmm. intersex people um, as kids especially kids who are born intersex have um, suffered um, the most at the hands of the medical profession than any other mm. group. Really. I mean, I, we just don't hear this term. There's been so much, you know, like the transgender and mm -hmm. all yeah. these different terms, but you just don't hear this term, intersex. No, and it, it's actually kind of a controversial term, but the, uh, but the older term that they use had, had they, they used to use, which was hermaphrodite, is also yes. an extremely offensive term. Yes. Um, and in about 2006, there was a group of... Um, people who at that time termed themselves intersex and medical professionals to try to come up with a, a di different terminology. And so they created a term called DSD or disorders of sex differentiation. Oh boy. But then there was a huge backlash against them mm -hmm. because um, the idea, I mean, if you told a 17 year old kid that they had a disorder of sexual differentiation, yeah. they would freak out. I mean, yeah. that's, that's Sounds a terrible. Totally that's a, yeah, it's a terrible stigmatizing term. Yeah. And so they, they, they're leaning towards the term differences of sex differentiation. But then <gasps> other people, you know, it's really, it's challenging because there are people who have these syndromes that classically fall under the umbrella who now hate the term intersex because they feel like they are being stigmatized because many of them, some of them, for instance, people with something called CAH, they are XX, but they are often what, what's called virilized at birth, meaning they have male testosterones that cause the clitorises to look, be enlarged and uh -huh. almost look like penises. Uh -huh. And so they feel, they do not like the term intersex because they feel like it is a pathology. But at the same time, those are the some of the bodies, the bodies of people with CAH, the babies with them are some of the ones that have been um, subjected to some of the more horrifying surgeries, wow. um, the quote feminizing surgeries that mm. 
have really high complication rates mm-hmm. that can interfere with orgasm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really terrible. And it's really complicated. Um, and complicated by the fact that so many parents don't even know about it until they're told that their child has it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so there's so much of a lack of public awareness yeah. about it. And so that's why I felt really strongly about right. writing that book. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have so many questions. I'm just so curious because then whether the person thinks that they're female but they have some testosterone or male like type organs like this so at this point does that mean it will affect the development of their genitalia uh for caais yeah uh, but definitely well it if it's a complete thing they'll phenotypically look female but not all of them will identify as female mm. yes so i are, think that's the key is also yeah, linking exactly. like the yeah the personal identity with what they're going to do going forward yeah yeah so some intersex kids are actually also transgender because mm-hmm. they were assigned a gender mm-hmm. birth mm-hmm. that doesn't correlate with what they feel afterward mm-hmm. um and that's the stickiest part um that's the part where i personally as a physician and as a mother would want to give my kid the choice to choose their own gender without yes. impo- imposing a surgical treatment upon yep. them mm-hmm yeah and um it's hard because some surgeons argue that oh the surgery will help them psychologically but there are actually no studies to show that people who have these surgeries are any psychologically better than people who don't in fact that I, I mean i personally know so many intersex adults now who mm-hmm. are really really resentful yeah, well, the, if the if decision is taken away from choices. them, yeah, if the exactly. choice is made for them, yeah, yeah, you're really rolling the dice, and you're not giving the individual the yeah. choice. Interesting. Um, do you specifically choose to write stories for the YA age group, or do you have any plans to write other genres or for other age groups? I've always wanted to write for kids and teens because I feel like those are the ages where you're the most impressionable where like a book can change your life or save your life. Um, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a teen, I read so voraciously. I would read a book a day. I would mm-hmm. read like dozens of book a month. Um, I was constantly, you know, ravenously a reader. Whereas an adult, I tend to read more, you know, you know, newspapers now, mm-hmm. you know, journalism, um, nonfiction, and mm-hmm. occasionally I'll have time to do an audiobook in a car, but it's really hard to get, hard to get the time to, to, to sit and actually read. Um, and also, yeah, yeah, my thoughts are definitely more baked in. Um, like books that I read now are obviously transformative and can change the way I view things, but I don't feel like they change my life the same way that mm. the books that I read as a, as a youth or, you know, mm-hmm. like they, those are the books that really dig into your bones. And um, like I said, can sometimes just be the only thing sometimes that, that keeps people from despair or from, you know, taking that step. And uh, um, I've spoken with a lot of young, young authors who just repeat this over and over again, how much, um, how much influence they have on young people's lives and how that is both frightening but also such a blessing and such an honor that people mm-hmm. let them into their lives at that point because those are the books that, that stay with me yeah yeah and so have you thought about what are the topics you'd like to write about or even what your next book is going to be about 
it's funny. I had kind of wanted to do for my next book something completely different. Mm-hmm. I had this, I, I just a random idea for um, probably a young adult, but um, a historical fantasy medical thriller. Hmm. Um, but I'm sorry, I've sort of been rethinking um, what I want to do now, though, um, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um I've been thinking, I've been trying to think more about what lessons I want to, I mean, I don't want, I don't, I never really write a story saying, I want this to be a lesson for these young readers, you know, uh-huh. um, because more than anything, I just want them to feel and to understand. But I also think it's kind of my duty in some ways to to tell the stories of people who whose voices aren't heard very much and um have my books be a little bit of a guidepost be helpful you know to be of use and um you know i don't think that i've i think that the story that that why historical fantasy i think could be interesting and a challenge but i'm not right really sure right now if it's that that's a book that will be of use right now and so Mm -hmm. i'm you know i'm thinking about how i can you know i'm thinking right (laughs) right yeah uh what advice would you give to people who are aspiring authors or who are trying to get a book published? I would definitely advise you to seek out um, readers and critique partners who you trust and who are also honest enough to tell you when things don't work and to be humble and humble enough about your writing to be able to accept feedback. You know, that's one of the hardest things. I think that people who can't accept feedback find a hard time in, in writing. Um, because, um, you know, you like to think of writing as this very solitary act. And it is, of course, you are the person who's putting, putting words down. But um, more and more, I think people are turning towards this, thinking about things in terms of maybe like a writer's room for a TV show where, you know, different people's ideas, different people's thoughts, they can work so synergistically, they can, you know, tighten up story, they can, like, make that story the best it can be. And so being able to take advice and being able to... Um, but at the same time, obviously, use your own judgment and create your own judgment for what, what's good um, is the most helpful. And obviously, just reading, 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 reading a lot and just writing a lot. And know that not everything you write is going to be instantly published um, necessarily, but that no word that you write is a waste. Um, I mean, I think about Abby a lot. Abby mm-hmm. wrote a lot of oh, novels yeah. before Love Boat Taipei. Mm-hmm. And, and she revised them, Love Boat Taipei so yes, many times, oh too. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> none, of them, none of them were a waste. Um, every word you write is brings you closer to being your best possible writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and since this is the Talking Taiwan podcast, can you talk a little bit about your connection to Taiwan? Like, when was oh, the yes, last time that course. you visited? <laughs> yes. So my um, my mother's Taiwanese. She was born in um, Puli, in um, Taiwan, and right now she actually still lives in Taichung. I took um, my kids um, there last year. Um, we had a lot of fun going to the salt the salt um, wetlands in, in Taichung and biking and um, eating lots of yummy food. Um, I actually lived in Taiwan um, from when I was. I guess two years old to three years old oh. um, after my parents got divorced mm. um, before, you know, it was sort of determined that, you know, my education might be better in the U S or, you know, they, just the circumstances mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. that um, they really wanted me to mm. have education in the U S mm-hmm. and um, I would, I remember going back quite a few times when I was younger, 
um, I wrote back when they were only two or three channels. <laughs> and, then I, and then suddenly, like 10 years later, when I went back, like Taiwan was more advanced than the U.S. was in so many ways. <laughs> and um, so I remember going out to the, you know, these farm areas and um, the mountains in Puli and San Juan Lake. And um, yeah. Wonderful. I still I still look for um Song, Song Yoping, Yoping, yeah. yeah, the scallion Song pancakes, Yoping. yeah. Um, whenever yeah. whenever I'm out and I, it's never as good as it is it was in Taiwan and Dofu Hua too uh-huh. is one of those typical uh, yeah. comfort foods yeah, that yeah, I yeah. always ask for in a dim sum restaurant. And, <gasps> What's so funny but during it's never as good. It doesn't have the peanuts. They never yeah. have the peanuts. <laughs> What's so funny during the pandemic, so many people were like baking bread and all this stuff. But I noticed yeah. that a lot of my Taiwanese friends were making scallion pancakes at home. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we, we we definitely have the first one. But you know what I did make? I made um some, um I guess it's not Taiwanese, but pineapple buns. Uh-huh. The, uh-huh. the the baked um buns. Yeah. With yeah. the with the custard filling, yeah. Yeah, we made that. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, totally a pandemic um yeah. cooking yeah. <laughs> cooking activity. So, yeah. Thank you so much. I wanted to thank you for um, taking the time out of your schedule to be on our podcast. Um, how can people learn more about you or your so, books? Uh, my website is www.iwgregorio.com. And I'm also on Twitter, um, Instagram, and Facebook at as um, IWGregorio. That's I-W-G-R-E-G-O-R-I-O. And um, I love hearing from readers. And um, I just also, I also love seeing, meeting readers in person, but obviously that's not happening <laughs> during the pandemic. But yeah. hopefully next year we'll be able to, I'll be able to do more book events. I'm tentatively scheduled for one in Tennessee actually already next March, March 2021. Oh, wow. All right. Who knows if it'll, if that'll happen, but I'm usually, um, I, I usually try to make it out to the American Library Association conferences and the National Council um, for Teachers of English, the NCTE conference. Uh-huh. Those are my favorites. The teachers and librarians are really the lifeblood of mm-hmm. any um, of any author. Yeah, so it's. I guess it's been a lot of virtual things. Yeah, I did a lot of virtual things, and um, you know, I think soon is. I actually need to email my booking agent. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> um, because she's starting to do more virtual class visits. You know, once the school year starts off, hopefully um, I'll do some virtual school visits with some of the schools that I was not able to get to earlier this year. Right. Okay, wonderful. Well, I thank you so much for putting the book out that you did. And hopefully it, it creates more awareness and makes people who are dealing with these issues feel like they're not alone. Thank you for having me. My guest on today's episode was Dr. Arlene Wong, who writes as I.W. Gregorio. I've been speaking with her about her latest book, This Is My Brain in Love. To learn more about her, visit her website, www.iwgregorio.com and TalkingTaiwan.com for the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.